0: I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet.
1: Buried alive. Buried alive. Come! Come! The crew of the USS Enterprise face off against an old nemesis or a control for a device that can create life. Or destroy it. Join us as we discuss my supposed imaginary friend, the way you know the Vulcans use logic, and the Shakespeare lines that Al and I actually remember. Then we find out if Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, stands the test of time.
0: James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says, Gladiator with a Glutton. Alan says, As a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today?
1: hello everyone and welcome to test of time podcast you're in for a special treat tonight is the first of three star trek related podcasts and welcome to the studio my podcast partner alan noah how you doing Al? i am doing okay thank you for asking james how are you I'm good. I I have been looking forward to today for a while. See, uh, back in March, we uh, watched—that was Muppet's March as our— No. What was it called? It was called March Muppet Madness. March Muppet Madness, exactly. And so I said, how about we do a Star Trek September?
0: Right. And I have to be honest with you. I was hoping that you would forget— uh because you do forget things sometimes it's happened before where you've forgotten which day we were going to record not lately I'll give you credit you haven't done that in a very long time uh just a couple weeks ago you did forget to get your sister a hoodie a five timer hoodie so sometimes you forget things and I was hoping that this deal we made in March this quid pro quo you would forget but you didn't and I'm a man of my word so I said that we could do Star Trek September Star trek Star Trek-tember? Like, it doesn't lend itself
1: to a good name. Not really, but I will say that my memory does include that you promised me that we're going to watch at least one more Star Trek movie in the future.
0: I maybe did promise that.
1: This stuff you
0: remember? Jesus. And I remember that when I first pitched March Muppet Madness, you were not super excited to watch three Muppet movies in a row But you were a good sport, you went along for the ride, you watched those movies with an open mind, and I appreciate that, and I really tried to emulate that spirit going into these Star Trek movies. I tried. I really tried. No
1: matter what happens over the next three weeks, know that I tried. I'm really curious. I mean, I have my instant prediction of what you thought of these films, but I'm really curious if you might surprise me. But I ask this because you were never really a Star Trek guy. I mean, is this the first time you've ever seen anything Star Trek? Have you ever seen any episode, any movie, anything? I've never seen an
0: episode of Star Trek, but I did see one other Star Trek movie before watching Star Trek II, colon, The Wrath of Khan. It was the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, I think 2009, I want to say. I'm not 100% sure of the year. But I did see that in the theater— I used to work at a show that was for the science channel, but it was produced out of a division of CBS. And we therefore had the rights to use like the old Star Trek TV show footage. And I think someone higher up wanted us to do like a promotional thing for the new Star Trek movie. You know, like the science behind Star Trek kind of a deal. And because we did that, uh, that segment, My boss and I got tickets to a screening of that movie. So we went and I saw that movie in the theater. That was the only Star Trek movie I have ever seen in my life before now.
1: And it's interesting because a lot of people, while I enjoyed that film, it's not necessarily a representation of at least the the old series and the old crew of Star Trek. I'd say it was kind of a blend of Star Trek and Star Wars. I remember thinking
0: it was very Star Wars-like. I don't remember a ton about it, to be honest. But there's one point where the new Spock meets the old Spock, like Leonard Nimoy, on some ice planet, and it reminded me of Hoth, and also that the old Spock was kind of Obi-Wan-like. That's really all I remember about that movie.
1: Well, for me, my relationship with Star Trek, uh, I actually got introduced to the old series On one of those New Year's Eve marathons, there were two or three VCRs in my house when I grew up, so I coordinated it to record like six hours of footage on at least two of them kind of just, you know, going back and forth so I could kind of get like, you know, 24 episodes of it, and I watched that tape a lot, but... I really didn't get into it much until college when a buddy of mine introduced me to Star Trek Next Generation, and then I started really liking it, and I watched it uh, when I could. It was on reruns, and I did watch Enterprise the first uh, year that it was out because I had a TiVo, and I was like really into like trying to find new shows to watch. But uh, regarding the films, I had seen uh, Star Trek IV in the theater, because that was a massive hit, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks. And I never saw any of the other Star Treks in the theater until I saw uh, a couple of the Next Generation films in the theaters. So I kind of just saw these on rentals and, you know, here and there. So I wasn't a huge Star Trek fan. I was always more a Star Wars fan. I mean, yeah, I loved Star Wars, and I wasn't
0: into Star Trek, and it kind of seemed like you had to pick one or the other. But I do remember at one point someone saying to me, like, well, you should get into Star Trek. I mean, if you like Star Wars, maybe you'd like it. And there's so much to see. And that actually intimidated me, just the fact that, like, I'm a completist by nature. So if I'm going to get into something, I'm going to want to watch all of the things— And there was so much Star Trek content that I felt like I would have had to catch up on that I was like, I'm just not that into it. And maybe I could have just watched the movies or just watched the new shows or whatever. But, I mean, even when you said, hey, let's skip Star Trek 1, I was like, wait a second. We're going to start with 2? Like the the little thing in my head of like, wait, you can't just start at 2. You need to start at 1. You know, that was there. And then when you said, no, no, let's just do 2, 3, 4, I didn't want to argue with you and make myself watch another Star Trek movie. So,
1: fine. But, I don't know, it just felt like there's so much there. Oh, there's not much there in Star Trek 1. Star Trek 1 is really trying to be 2001. And it has these long, drawn-out, like, Five-minute sequences through space and inside a sort of computer, blah, blah, blah. It's really not good. It's really boring. The only thing of note is that James Kirk uh, gets promoted from Captain Kirk to Admiral Kirk.
0: Okay. I mean, I had in my head known that he was Captain Kirk just from, you know— knowing pop culture stuff and then in this movie when they were calling him admiral i was like oh i bet that's what happened in the first movie so thank you for confirming it because i didn't even like
1: look it up on wikipedia to be honest yeah it really is a reset the first film was not really very well received and this was definitely a pivot from the first film which is more of a space opera and this is more of a, a classic villain and the first film was a little more philosophical gotcha okay Well, for anyone who hasn't
0: seen this movie, Star Trek II, colon, The Wrath of Khan, it's about the crew of the Starship USS Enterprise. James Kirk is now Admiral Kirk, as you said, and he's overseeing students at the Starfleet Academy. Meanwhile, an old nemesis named Khan plots revenge. Also, a past lover of Kirk's has developed the Genesis device, which can bring life to empty planets, but can also be used as a weapon. Khan captures members of Kirk's crew and plots to gain control of the Genesis device and kill Kirk. In the end, only one will be standing. Will it be Kirk or will it be Khan? Khan! I feel like we should have had our friend Mike Khan be a guest on this episode. If you're listening, Mike, hi. I mean, only because we're going to be screaming his last name or you're going to be screaming his last name. I don't think I'm going to do it.
1: You know, I'll bet you that's never happened once in his life. No one's ever screamed his last name at him the way uh, William Shatner screams it in this film. I'm sure
0: that's not true. That's like no one ever making an underwear joke about your last name or making an ARC joke about my last name. It happens all the damn time. So this movie came
1: out in 1982. Was it a big hit with the Trekkies? Well, the first film, uh, that had a huge budget because Paramount realized like, we have a pretty popular franchise you know, a pretty popular IP that can compete with Star Wars. And the first film, they put $46 million into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Wow. And that was what year? That was, I think it's like uh, 79 or something. And okay. And this is really the film that saved Star Trek because it was filmed for a quarter of the budget. It was filmed for $11 million. And at first it was $10 million and they got to squeeze him for an extra 10% to $11 million. And it was a massive hit. It opened at number one with $14 million, knocking down Rocky Three. Hey, yo, Rocky Three! It <laughs> rocked it down to number two. And it actually beat the opening of another film. We absolutely have to do. And I have to admit, one reason we haven't done it is I kind of am a little bit scared to watch it. Because I remember it being really scary. It's a big horror hit from 1982. And you definitely know this film. Poltergeist? That's right.
0: I mean, when we do that movie on the podcast, I will tell you about how terrified I was of those movies specifically poltergeist
1: 3. But yeah, those are scary movies for sure. Oh yeah, and uh you know it's interesting just looking at the top 10, there's this other film that was in its 12th week in the uh top 10. And it was a movie called Porkies. Have you ever heard of this film? Sure, of course I've heard of Porkies. I've seen Porkies. Yeah. You've never heard of Porkies? I mean, I've heard of it and it always comes up in one of these like, you know, the origin of the teen sex romp. And it's just amazing to me that a, a film like Porkies has No current pop culture relevance. You know, historically it does, but it has absolutely no impact. Whereas something like even the old uh, movies like Airplane and even to a lesser extent Cheech and Chong, they're still somewhat relevant. People still talk about that, but that's a huge film that no one mentions. I don't know that I agree with that. I feel like that comes up every now and again. People talk about Porky sometimes. People under 40? Uh, I don't know anyone under 40. But I just thought that was interesting. And finally, after 30 weeks in the top 10, Chariots of Fire fell out of the top 10. (laughs) Whoa. I just didn't get that film. Yeah, that's okay. But um, the interesting thing about this film is that on a fraction of a budget of the first film, 11 million bucks, it wound up grossing almost $100 million. So it was a massive hit, and Paramount realized, you know, with the right story, people really like this stuff. It's not Star Wars money, but, you know, 1982, $100 million film. Like, yes, you were going to sign us up for another sequel. Sure, sure. And the
0: movie opens with these... People on a Starfleet mission, and you think that it's a real mission, but it actually is just a training mission, and the woman who is in charge of this faux mission is named Lieutenant Savick, and she's played by Kirstie Alley. I noticed in the credits it said, introducing Kirstie Alley, so like this was her first major film debut, and that's kind of cool, I guess. But it's this exercise where she's supposed to go and help this one ship. But if she does, she'll be attacked by Klingons and she does it anyway. And the Klingons attack and kill her entire crew. But, you know, just pretend because it's not a real thing. But she is disappointed that she
1: has failed this mission. Right. Now, this opening sequence is pretty interesting because even before the Internet, fans would get news about uh, upcoming movies, you know, fan magazines and there was a leak that, you know, spoiler for the end of this film, uh, Spock dies in Star Trek Two, And this news got out, and fans were really upset. And in response to this, the filmmakers actually put the Kobayashi Maru sequence right at the beginning of the film. Because fans knew that Spock died. So when they saw Spock die instantly, and they thought maybe that was the rumored Spock death that they heard about. And so that they could maybe dull their uh, the impact of actually Spock dying.
0: Oh, okay. So a bait and switch, basically. And they call it the Kobayashi Maru because of some reason, but that's just the name of this, like... Test that they put her through?
1: Yeah, I mean, the point of the test is that it is an unwinnable situation and you're not supposed to win. They're just supposed to find out what happens when a captain is in an unwinnable situation. And we later find out that it's not entirely unbeatable, but we don't find that out until later. We do find out that Captain Kirk was the only person to ever, or Admiral Kirk at this point, he was the only person to ever beat the Kobayashi Maru
0: right right um one thing about Savic is that they call her mr Savic a couple of times and i wasn't sure if that was like a thing that vulcans don't have gender or it's just like a politeness thing i i kind of guessed that she wasn't meant to be like a trans character but i don't know is there like anything behind that
1: Oh, I think it's Mr. because uh, I believe—now, this could be wrong. I think this is maybe the way you'd address someone in the Navy. As Mr., even if it's a female? I don't know. I feel like maybe in the Navy you do. But oh, I, okay. I thought it was something like that. No, I, But I don't know really why they do that because I don't believe they do anything like that in the modern Star Trek series. Okay. It was just something that kind of caught my ear. Uh, Vulcan, ear. That's a Star Trek joke. See, I'm going along for the ride. I'm doing it. You are. I am. There's this dialogue between Kirk and Spock, and it's Kirk's birthday, and Dr. McCoy bones. He had given him these pair of glasses from, like, the 18th century or the 1800s. This might come in handy later, just saying. Um, Mm -hmm. And... These are like old man glasses. You know, when we were kids, there was Star Wars, the young Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. And even as kids, we knew Star Trek. It was joked about. Like, they were kind of old in the movies. Yeah. To their credit, they didn't try to, you know, make him look pathetic and do, like, you know, all the Luke Skywalker stuff as, you know, 40-something, 50-something-year-old actors. And, you know, they really address the fact that they're getting old. And Kirk is kind of lamenting to his friends that, you know, he's promoted and it's kind of a good thing. But, uh, you know, he's not really happy with the promotion because probably his best days were the things he saw in the old series and just the adventures he had when he was captain on the deck of the Enterprise.
0: Right, and aging is sort of like a theme of this movie. And you're right, it is kind of good that they just kind of lean into the fact that they're getting older. Um, And then there's this whole other thing about this Genesis device, uh, which has been created by this woman named Dr. Marcus and her son David.
1: That's basically the MacGuffin of the film, is this Genesis device. The good guys have it, the bad guys want it, because as we find out, the Genesis device is this scientific device that when fired at a planet that has no life in it, it can actually start the life birthing process almost instantly, you know, within days, a planet can have, it can be full of life forms. And uh, on the contrast, if you fired at a planet that already has life, uh, it could pretty much be a planet killer and all life will die. Right. I mean, such is the
0: power of creating life. If you have the power to create life, you also have the
1: power to destroy it. Whoa. Mind blown. Oh so... Chekhov and Captain Terrell, Captain Terrell is this new character we don't know, but uh, Chekhov, he's from the old series, and the original crew of the Enterprise, and they're trying to find uh, an uninhabited planet. They think they're going to SETI Alpha 6, the sixth planet in the solar system, but instead they beam to SETI Alpha 5, the fifth planet. Now, unbeknownst to most of the people watching this, and myself included when I first saw this movie, and I'm sure you, this film is actually, interestingly, a direct sequel to a single episode of Star Trek from the first season called Space Seed, in which there was this character, Khan, and he was initially befriended by the Enterprise and he was brought on board, but then Khan tries to steal the Enterprise and Kirk essentially banished him to City Alpha 5, and he's left there with, yeah, you know, basically the means to survive there, but there was some kind of uh, astronomical event, and City Alpha 5 is pretty much a, a barren wasteland, uh, most of them died, Khan's wife died. And he's basically hated Kirk for years and years. And now uh, Chekhov, who remembers this encounter with Khan, when he hears that they're on a planet with this guy Khan, and he realizes, oh, we're on City Alpha 5. We have to get out of here immediately. But it's too late. They're caught by Khan, who is played by a very, very famous actor. Ricardo
0: Montalban, who I really only know as the bad guy in The
1: Naked Gun, colon from the files of Police Squad. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew him from that and as Khan. But I certainly knew him first from uh, Naked Gun. So when I saw Star Trek 2, I was like, oh, that's, that's the guy who gets run over by a steamroller and a band. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I just only
0: think of him in that role. He was also on that TV show... Right? Uh, Fantasy Island?
1: Was that it? I think that's it. And, you know, this guy, he was always known as being like, ladies fell for him with every word he said. He was such a sexy man. Like, that was what he always had the reputation for. And in this film, he pretty much has his chest out the entire film. I saw a quote by him. Uh, he was on The Tonight Show, and Johnny Carson asked him, how did you achieve this uh, physique in that film? And he just said, I did a lot of push-ups. A lot of push-ups. I mean, he is ripped in this film.
0: Yes, he is. And so because he wants revenge on Kirk, and he knows that Chekhov is one of Kirk's crew, he puts this like worm thing in Chekhov's ear, and also uh, Captain Terrell, this other character who's there. And what this creature will do is it will burrow into their brains, but not kill them. It will just make them highly susceptible to suggestion. So basically, Khan can control them as puppets, basically.
1: I I was totally scared of this scene as a kid. And I actually think the animatronics work well. I think it's a totally disgusting scene. It's uh, pretty well acted by the actors, Khan, he's played so well by Ricardo Montalban. I, I just love how he, he says things like, You are in a position to demand nothing. He is a
0: commanding presence. Yeah, he's perfectly fine in this movie. I think the thing that kind of threw me was the fact that while I was watching this, I was thinking, I wonder if this guy was on the old TV show. And I did Google it to see that he was, just out of curiosity. But I did feel like I was missing something. That's sort of why I like to be a completist and watch everything that there is to watch and watch it all in order because you do miss some stuff. And this is a pretty big thing that I was missing. And Khan explains what happened to him. And from his point of view, Kirk is the bad guy and he was innocent. And, you know, then we kind of hear from Chekhov of like, no, Kirk did what was right. But it does sort of seem like Khan has a reason to hold a grudge against Kirk. And we never hear Kirk's side of the story. We never get like anything else in this movie where we think, oh, Kirk was right to do whatever he did and banish him to this planet. And I did a little bit think that was a missed opportunity because based on what you're saying about that episode, it sounds like, yeah, Kirk was right. But in this movie, it just kind of seems like Kirk banished all of these people and left them to die on a barren wasteland and didn't really care about it.
1: Uh, You're absolutely right. The film was actually made more for the fans, which is very different than what you do today. But I agree, it's surprising that they don't give you more background, and I did read that there was a a moment that they were gonna show you flashbacks to that episode, but they realized that the quality is so different, and I think that was definitely a good idea that they did not do flashbacks. Yeah, probably. But I think they could have explained it a little better. And I remember when I was watching it the first time, I didn't quite understand. Like, I felt like maybe it was Star Trek One. I, I was missing this from, but it's not Star Trek One. It's from that episode of the old series.
0: Yeah. You understand that Khan's a bad guy the second he puts, like, those worms in the people's ears. Like, you get it. But I just felt like there was more backstory that I was missing and clearly I was.
1: But I think it's more interesting to know from your perspective that, you know, you feel sympathetic no matter what this guy did. Like, they banished an entire colony. Like, there's definitely ethical things that they really don't get into and it does make their uh, their plight a little sympathetic. So yeah. that always makes it for an interesting villain. But you're right, they don't quite uh, explore that angle. Right. But uh, now that he has control of Chekhov and Tyrrell, they phone uh, Dr. Marcus and they pretend they're from Starfleet and they're like, we're coming to pick up uh, the Genesis device because while they were under hypnosis, they told Khan about this brilliant weapon. And like, you'd be thinking like, why would you just hand this off? You got to fact check this thing. So she does. And she calls uh, Kirk because they say that this is Kirk's order. And it happens to be that Kirk and uh, Dr. Marcus, they used to um, knock boots Right.
0: And like I say, I've never watched an episode of Star Trek, but from what I've heard, Kirk was like kind of a Lothario, right? Like he was popular with the ladies. Is that
1: right? Oh, yeah, he was popular with the ladies, yeah. And I don't believe this character is from the old series. I think I read that they were going to have someone from the old series that was one of these love interests return as this character, as Dr. Marcus. But they just uh, decided to do a brand new character.
0: Okay, I was going to ask you that if she was from the TV show, too, because I was wondering about that. Um, But, yeah, so Dr. Marcus calls Kirk and says, why did you— Try to get the Genesis device. What are you up to? But it's like a bad space connection on this phone call. And so Kirk doesn't really get the whole message. But he thinks that something weird is happening. And they go to this uh like space lab thing where he knows that she's working. Unfortunately, Khan gets there first and kills virtually all of the crew there.
1: Yeah, and this is when we finally find out what the heck is this Genesis device. And you know in certain films, like, ah, this is where the money went. Usually it's the climactic end scene. But in this film, this is 1982, and this is the first fully computer animated sequence. And I have to say, you know, it actually pretty much holds up today. I think it's a pretty cool sequence. You know, it doesn't look uh, photorealistic, but I think... For the film. I think it looks very good. It's basically an animation about how this uh, this weapon uh, fires a shot at a planet. It basically amplifies what took 3 billion years on Earth. It just does in like 3 days. And I think it kind of gets away with it because it's not one of these Pixar kind of photorealistic uh, animations. It kind of looks like an animated cartoon. So I think it looks pretty decent.
0: I think it looks like an early 80s animation which it is and that makes sense but also like all of the computers in this movie look like early 80s computers you know just in terms of like the font and the screens and everything and that's what they had then but i don't know it does all kind of look pretty dated to me
1: yes it's not gonna be as good as something modern but uh i thought it still looks pretty cool Meanwhile, the Reliant comes and they think it's friendly, but the Reliant winds up firing at the Enterprise and basically cripples it. And you find out that the Reliant is controlled by Khan. Kirk realizes who it is. And Khan is basically like, I'm going to kill you. I've been waiting for this. And he gives him a moment. And uh, Kirk uses the stalled time to basically enter in what turns out to be a back door that uh, the highest up senior officers in Starfleet know about, which is a way to disable the shields on any ship. And they do this and they remotely disable the shields on the Reliant. And then they're able to disable the Reliant as well. So both ships are now kind of dead in the water. Yes. So then Kirk and a couple of his crew
0: members beam onto this lab and they find everyone that has been killed by Khan and then they beam down to the planet because this lab is like orbiting a planet and they know from this video they saw about the Genesis device, the one with the animation, that... Phase one was we test this device in a lab. Phase two is we take it to a cave. And phase three is we, like, use it on a planet. And right away, I was like, wait, wait, wait. That's really fast. Like, you do it in a cave and then go straight to taking over an entire planet? Like, maybe do, like, I don't know... An island somewhere? Like, don't do a whole planet as step three? I felt like that was really, really quick.
1: I would imagine they were just missing step three is asteroid and step four is planet.
0: I feel like they should have slowed this down a little bit. But whatever. So... Because Kirk remembers that, then they beam down to this cave, and that's where the Genesis device is. But that's also where Chekhov and Terrell reveal that they have been, like, spies for Khan this whole time. And no, no, they're not really good guys. They're still under his control.
1: Yeah, and uh, Khan orders them to give them the Genesis device, so Khan is able to beam up Genesis— and he also orders them to murder Kirk and his crew. And Tyrell, he points his phaser at Kirk, but he kind of fights it, but he can't stop himself. So Terrell decides in order to save Kirk, he's going to kill himself so that he doesn't become a murderer. Good for him? Question mark? I assume that Khan would just order him to kill himself afterwards anyway. But after that
0: happens, then the creature that was in Chekhov's brain, like, just crawls
1: out and dies. Like, Why? Didn't they stun him, or did he just, like, collapse on the ground? I thought he just, like, collapsed. I didn't really follow what happened. Maybe it's not explained perfectly, but the the creature does crawl out lucky for Chekhov. And, yeah. And it's uh, killed. So Chekhov makes a seemingly a full recovery. So now Khan is in the Reliant, and he's basically telling Kirk, like, haha, the tables have turned, and you are now the one that I am going to strand. Right. And then that is when Kirk yells not I'm not going to do it.
0: I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. You do it. Tony, play the clip. Con! Con! Who's
1: Tony? Tony, who's been here for 270 or so episodes.
0: Is that your imaginary friend? Who do you
1: think edited that sound clip just now?
0: Me, later. Oh. <laughs> you call me Tony? You have
1: an alter ego when you're editing. I... Really don't, though, but okay, sure. You smoke three packs in a row. Don't bother me, kid. I'm editing.
0: Why is Tony an old Jewish lady? (laughs) I have a lot of questions about your imaginary friend. We'll follow up about that later. But while all of this is going on, Dr. Marcus is there with her son, and Kirk figures out that this son is his son. And that's like... Kind of a big deal that Kirk finds out he had this kid that he didn't know about. But his son, David, doesn't seem to know that that's his dad.
1: Yeah, there's a couple Star Wars analogies in this film. One is the reveal that David is your son. You know, kind of, of course, the Darth Vader reveal. And there is a planet-killing weapon. There are these similarities. And, you know, it's interesting that they just throw a son at Kirk. And, you know, he never had a son in the series.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, you know, the fact that he has this long lost son and what does that mean? And it sort of ties into the whole thing about aging and you know how he feels about getting older and now he finds out about his son and he didn't know he had a son and then he reflects back on the life that he could have had and he's thinking about all of this while effectively being banished in this cave but then dr marcus shows him that the cave isn't just a cave there's all of this life that they did create with genesis it does work how cool is that and kirk is like talking to spock the whole time And Spock is saying it's going to take two weeks before they can get the system back online and beam them back up. But it was a code and they're ready in two hours. And they did that so that Khan wouldn't know that they were able to beam up because Khan is listening to them. But so now Kirk and his friends are back on the Enterprise.
1: Yeah, I liked it because this is kind of the old series kind of stuff. They basically outsmarted uh, Khan. I do like the line, once uh, Spock is able to beam them back on the ship, Savick, uh she was saying, Captain, you lied. And he goes, I exaggerated. And the thing is, uh, Vulcans can't lie because they only speak in logic. But Spock is not a pure Vulcan. He is a half Vulcan, half human. And every once in a while, he bends that, you know, he can never lie kind of thing. And it's because he's human and humans can lie. Humans are really good at lying.
0: Yeah. Do you know how you can tell that Vulcans use logic? How? They say it 850 fucking times in this movie. Um, I only counted 712. Okay, fine. They say that so much. They don't say in this movie that he's half human. I don't think. I didn't
1: catch that. Um, they definitely will say it in some of the sequels. Okay, fine, but they don't say it in this movie. The line still works. You lied. I merely exaggerated. It still works. Sure. But so then Kirk and his crew are on
0: Enterprise. Khan and his crew are on Reliant. And they're in this, like, very slow chase scene because both of their ships are damaged from their battle
1: earlier. Yeah, I mean, it essentially is kind of... uh... One of these U-571 Das Boot, it's a submarine battle in space. It's interesting that it's purposely slow moving, and I think it's very effective. We have James Horner's score, and you have both ships that are crippled, so they can't warp out of there. They're on you know partial impulse engines, and it's going to be a battle of the wits. Right. And so then Kirk decides to go
0: into this nebula where they'll both be at a disadvantage. They won't be able to see very well and their shields won't work and their weapons won't be able to target or whatever. And this was very reminiscent of two Star Wars scenes, I thought. Mostly it's reminiscent of the asteroid field scene in Empire Strikes Back where Han does the exact same thing of like, well, let's go into this asteroid field. Why? Because they'd be crazy to follow us. Uh, And also in Solo, a Star Wars story, when they're doing the Kessel Run and that's like this impossible to navigate thing. But in those movies, the chase scene in the asteroid field in the Kessel Run is thrilling like there's stuff that's happening and there's asteroids going everywhere and Han Celeste turned the ship and whoa whoa oh my god look out for this and in the nebula in this movie I mean like you're saying it's like a submarine chase yeah it's just like these two very slow ships kind of moving in this very slow way and it's
1: foggy I guess I mean it's a nebula which is as you know sort of a nursery for stars and you know in this nebula because of all this uh, star activity they can't use their screens I think it's very thrilling. I think it's not the same thrilling and this is where J.J. Abrams decided, yeah we're not doing a Star Trek 2 kind of thing we're going to do a Star Wars kind of ending and it's a little more thrilling pew 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 space shooting, which is a great kind of thing to film. This is just different and when people want to know what's the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek there's a lot of differences but there's also, you know, space battles and you can show this battle versus uh, the battle above Endor those are very different and I think both are great. I
0: don't even know that you can call this a battle. I think that is a stretch. I understand what you're
1: saying. Just like you wouldn't necessarily call uh two submarines chasing each other around and then one finally fires a torpedo, is it a battle or is it kind of a, you know, a little uh tussle? I don't know what you'd call it. I don't know what exactly you'd call it, but battle
0: seems to be a stretch. And is this thing that you're describing now, is this the difference between
1: hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi? No, I always thought hard sci-fi was defined as really a stickler to science rules. That's what I thought hard sci-fi meant. Yes, I think so too. And I feel like that's sort of this
0: where it's like, a nebula
1: is a star that's blah, 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 blah
0: that you can't use your screens like that's using actual science to explain what's happening and it's more realistic than Han Solo flying into an asteroid field right
1: yeah I mean I never considered Star Trek hard sci-fi uh because in the scripts for series it will say we need to techno babble the laser so that we can kill them and then they send it off to their consultant at Caltech who's like uh, we need to reverse the polarity of the mainframe to defragmatize the magnetic pole on the tractor beam Th- those words mean things you know they get someone to fill those things in but there are like hard physics uh, in Star Trek and there are books called the physics of Star Trek but it, when you're looking for hard sci-fi I think you're looking more at uh, novels and series like the expanse that like every single bullet is gonna like react the way a bullet in- Zero G is going to do it And you're not going to have Explosions with sound in space Star Trek still takes A lot of those liberties
0: Okay So then Is it fair to say That Star Trek Isn't hard sci-fi But it's harder Sci-fi Than Star Wars
1: Oh, absolutely. I would say Star Wars is more of a fantasy in space. It doesn't try to do anything science. I don't think it it should. No, I 100% agree.
0: I have long said that Star Wars isn't sci-fi, it's fantasy. I have had that debate with many, many people over the
1: years. 100% agree. Oh, then I agree with you. I mean, it would make more sense in a Star Trek episode if there seemed to be a boy that was levitating a rock For Dr. Spock to take a blood sample or Dr. McCoy to take a blood sample and say, we found these things called midichlorians in his blood that therefore help him amplify the ability to raise that rock. That would be a little more in place in Star Trek to explain things scientifically. Gotcha. Okay. So back on the Enterprise, it's a big space chase between the two. Well, you know, slow moving. And ultimately, they both damage each other greatly. But the Reliant is mortally damaged and it's going to blow up. And Kirk and his crew seemingly have won. But that's not how Khan goes out. Right. So he has a
0: Genesis device. So he's going to use it. And I thought that he had to like shoot it at a planet and then it was going to take over a planet but
1: he sort of like self-destructs it is that right yeah this is not where i think necessarily the sci-fi goes wrong i think they should have explained something like the genesis device happens to be powered by a huge bomb or something and like there's really no explanation for what happens after uh, khan does what he does next
0: he just activates the device which he knows will blow up his ship but he's gonna die anyway and it should also take the enterprise with them because the enterprise doesn't have warp drive i did a little bit think it was weird that khan and kirk never like meet face to face in this movie like kirk kills khan by like shooting at his ship which okay cool that's a thing that can happen in a space battle i guess but i don't know i was just expecting them to like have a
1: face-to-face showdown and that does not happen you're right it doesn't happen and i read that one of the reasons for that is they really wanted ricardo montalban to be in this film and he had other commitments so he was able to film a lot of his stuff on other sound stages oh okay yeah so they kind of did a michael j fox thing working around his uh tv show schedule
0: Uh uh-huh and before khan dies he like does a lot of like shakespearean quoting for some reason, not Shakespearean. He
1: quotes Moby Dick because oh. there's a lot of Ahab and the whale uh, references in this film, and you know he has this line. To the last grapple with thee. From hell's heart I'd stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. And then he detonates the JAS's device. And I think it's a great death scene. Like, Khan, like, surrender and we'll beam you up. And we'll give you medical care. And, you know, we'll take care of you and your crew. And he's basically... Fuck you, bitch. I hate you more than anything. And if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to kill you with me. I think it's an awesome death, personally.
0: I understand the motivation, but, like, the monologue quoting Moby Dick to no one, because no one can hear him, that's just weird.
1: I agree with what you just said, that that is true. I think they should have been a little more on the nose with the Moby Dick references. Like, you know what it should have been? Bowen should have given, instead of giving him a, a pair of glasses, they should have given him a first copy of Moby Dick. Sure. It could have been something like that. And then they, he could have said that quote or he could have said, I always loved Ahab. Oh, but I always thought it was a sad tale. And they could have made a little reference to it and then it would have been a little more obvious. But there's a lot of uh, Moby Dick references in this film. And the fact that you knew is something Shakespeare-like. Like this is definitely a brilliant or or well-renowned quote that he's quoting. Yeah,
0: I feel like I should have known that it was Moby Dick, but oh well.
1: No, I mean, it's not something like if it was to be or not to be, which is quoted in Star Trek VI, you would know that as Shakespeare. Yes,
0: I would. I I did have to memorize a couple of uh, Shakespeare lines when I was in high school. Um, Do you still remember any of them? uh, Out, out, brief candle. What creeps in this petty pace from day to day? I think that's all I got.
1: That's funny because one of the only ones I remember is from Macbeth where he goes, tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow and, and tomorrow, tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Yeah, and that's all it. all our There's... yesteryears. That, yeah, that's okay. what it is. I yeah. think I, I messed up part of that. But, oh, oh right. I was like, what is uh, with Shakespeare and, and his creeps in this petty pace? Yeah, that, that's, that's from Macbeth. But maybe I'm mixing up two different things. Our what English a... teachers would be very proud that we at least remembered a little bit of it. I think my English
0: teacher would be very disappointed. I completely butchered that.
1: I think mine would be happy.
0: Okay, fine. But on the Enterprise, they can't get the warp drive working. It's flooded with radiation. No human can go in there to to fix it. But Spock isn't human. He's half human, half Vulcan. Although, like I said, they never say that he's half human. He goes in there. He fixes the reactor somehow with science. But he dies in the process. He sacrifices himself. He says that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few Or the one, which is a callback to a previous conversation that Kirk and Spock had, and Spock knows that dying to save everyone else is the right thing to do because it is logical. He says logical, like for the 878th time.
1: Is it said that no human could go in there? I assume the human could, but it would also die.
0: I thought it was that if a human went in there, he or she would die instantly, whereas the Vulcan will die eventually, but it'll take longer. That was just how I interpreted it.
1: No, I, I might have missed that part because that makes a lot more sense because it's kind of like good for you, Spock. But, you know, like why didn't you go in there, Scotty or, or somebody? Like if someone has to go, it shouldn't be the guy that has to run from across the ship to do it. You know? Right right but that makes a lot more sense uh you know story wise so spock was the only one who could do it which makes it even more logical sense that he should do it and i think his death is very effective although i had seen this film well after i had seen star trek 4 and also i'd known that star trek III is called the search for spock and apparently because the audience had heard and were not happy about the spock death Paramount had purposely let it leak to Entertainment Weekly or something at the time, and they let it be known that Spock will be back. I mean, you know, oh, did I spoil that we're already working on Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, where he comes back to life? Oh, damn it. I mean, they make it
0: pretty clear because then after the funeral scene, you see his coffin on the Genesis planet, and the whole thing of the Genesis planet is that it creates life. So it's not subtle, but... It does make the whole, like, mourning Spock and the whole eulogy at his funeral and Kirk mourning his best friend, like, all of that feels hollow when, yeah, you know he's going to come back.
1: Well, interestingly, that stuff was not filmed in the original script. Leonard Nimoy did not want to come back. You know, he had this famous book. I don't know if you knew he had this book called I Am Not Spock.
0: Yeah, I know that from The Simpsons.
1: And then he later uh, came out with a book where he accepted it. And he's like, no, it's not so bad to be Spock. And he came out with a book called I Am Spock. And, and uh, then he had another book where he said, I am also
0: Sulu. Yeah, yeah,
1: that, that's the uh, the Simpsons joke. Yeah. But um, Leonard Nimick did not want to come back until he was promised a death scene. And actually, he did not see that coffin scene until the premiere. The story is that he said immediately, I'm going to be getting a call from Paramount because obviously they're going to have to uh, pay him to go back for this story. Um, right, and then he would
0: have a lot of leverage in those negotiations
1: for the sequel. But he oh. got what he really wanted in the sequel. Do you know what he wanted in the sequel? Um, a bigger trailer? No, he wanted to direct. And he wanted directing the next two Star Trek movies.
0: Oh, interesting. Um, just going back one second, what's the name of the movie studio? Paramount. Paramount. Like mountain? Like mount? Yeah, Paramount. No, you've been saying
1: Paramount. <laughs> There's definitely not a way to confirm or deny that Uh, yeah, there is We're gonna listen to it There's we- no way you could play a smash cut of me Saying it the right way Right now, quickly, can you?
0: Nope Uh, do we need to change our theme song? James says Paramount with a On No, that doesn't have the same I, I, with, ring to it Without
1: an N? <laughs> I, yeah, uh, that, that was weird It's in there, but it's like like paramount no like it no it, it's, it's wrong it's, it's wrong you're doing it wrong you're, i agree i'm doing it wrong but i think i'm i think i'm throwing it in there at the very end of the ow no no you are not come on no
0: so we're at the end of the movie james do you think that star trek 2 colon
1: the wrath of khan stands the test of time You know, I'm going to start out uh, by saying a bunch of things that I think are flaws. I think there is a big flaw that I remember thinking as a kid in those 20-something episodes I had taped on my VHS. I did not have the one that was with Khan. So I did not know the background of this when I saw this. And I think there is something missing there. I don't think Kirstie Alley is is very effective in this film. She winds up being replaced by another actress in uh, part three and part four, uh, an actress named Robin Curtis, and I think she plays the character more effectively. You know, the soundtrack. I think it, something that's missing from this series is that there's no coherent uh, score throughout the entire series. You know, you have that classic Star Trek theme. Here's just a clip of that from the original series. And then in Star Trek 1, Jerry Goldsmith had this fantastic score. And you guys might not recognize it as the score from Star Trek 1. You might recognize it from somewhere else. Yeah, it was used as the theme song for Star Trek The Next Generation. And that was a fantastic score that even—you recognize that, right, Al? I guess. But it's recognizable that at least if they made references to it in the score, it it would be good. I love uh, James Horner's score, but I thought it was weird that he was apparently purposely told not to reference the first movie's score. And I think that was (laughs) paramount— The decision by them to <laughs> that was very subtle, yeah, good job. Thank you. To really distance themselves from the first film and to be like, this is not Star Trek One, folks. Uh, so I, I didn't like that the music didn't carry on from that, but I did like the music. The villain in this film is great. I think uh, Khan is played wonderfully. I think he's a compelling villain, and I think it's actually probably cool that they don't show you that Kirk was definitely right in what he did to Khan, because I think Khan's kind of sympathetic. Anyone who's stranded somewhere for what 30 years or something, they're gonna go crazy, and you know the guy is—he's not justifiable in what he does, but uh, you can understand why he does it, and that's an important thing with a villain—to at least know his reasoning. And I know his reasoning, his anger and there's a couple of times where he could have escaped with the Genesis device but he's like, fuck no, I have a chance to kill Kirk and that's more important to him and I kind of like that, that you know, he doesn't really necessarily want to blow up planets. He really wants to kill Kirk and I think he's a great character and overall, I think this is a really nice Star Trek film. It's got action. It does have action. It has really scary parts. I thought that the uh, bug going in the ears, I, I think it's very scary. And I still think it's effective. I think the special effects are good in this film. Even the early CGI is still passable. The action is fun, and it's well-paced. Not like a Star Wars film, but I think the film's good. And when you know it's part of a trilogy, it makes it a little bit better. At the time, everyone knew he'd come back. It's not as, uh, you know, emotional when he dies. But that being said, I still think the death scene is great, and the funeral is good. And overall, I think Star Trek 2 colon, the Khan. Is a great film and still holds up. Skip Star Trek One, folks. All you need to know is that he's admiral now, and go right to Star Trek Two. But what do you think, Al? It's renowned in uh, you know circles. But you know, if you didn't like this film, I'm not gonna shit on you. I'm curious. I think this film is a good film. But what do you think, Al? That's what's really important. Does this film stand the test of time? You're right, what I
0: think is the most important thing. I I appreciate that you said that finally and that you you understand that. Um, So I agree with you that Khan is a good villain, but even though I think he is interesting, I do think that there is stuff about him that is just not explained in his backstory. Also, he's apparently like a genetically modified brilliant genius. Like they mentioned that a couple times and that's why he's... Smart and maybe that's why he's quoting Moby Dick at the end. But I kind of feel like they could have done more with that. Like, he also seems to be pretty strong. Like, is he modified to be physically strong and brilliant? Yes, and it's not referenced enough or used enough. But you know what is great about Khan? The word wrath in the title. The Wrath of Khan, that is a great subtitle. I have looked ahead to the next two movies and... The Search for Spock and The Voyage Home in 3 and 4, those subtitles suck. The Wrath of Khan is a much, much better subtitle. Five stars for that. That is very good. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you on that. Um, the uh, the Genesis device I thought was a little disappointing because at no point do we see Phil Collins. Ah, <laughs> uh... That was a dad joke. Um, but there is so much stuff in this movie that we— Completely glossed over that is painfully slow. And we glossed over it because why would we talk about it? But like in the beginning when the Starfleet cadets are like learning how to do their maneuvers and everything, there is like a docking sequence that goes on for like 20 minutes where the Kirsty Alley character is learning how to like pull the ship in or pull it out of a dock or whatever. It was so damn slow they like really took their time and that's why i thought that oh this is hard sci-fi because they're explaining everything and every little detail has to be worked out and there's so many crew members on this spaceship and they all have their own thing to do so anytime you see the enterprise or even on reliant and they need to do anything you need to have 17 characters have 3 lines of dialogue and That's probably realistic. Like, I can see that that's what you would probably need to do as opposed to just having Han say, punch it, and Chewie say, roar, and then Chewie does everything. I, I get that it's probably more feasible this way, but it's really, really, really slow. And the thing that works about this movie is, like, the big ideas of this genetically engineered villain who's been in isolation for 30 years. He's out for revenge, and he's going to get this device that can create life on a new planet. Like, whoa, all of that sounds amazing. On paper, I'm into that movie. Hell yeah. But the execution is painfully slow. It doesn't work for me. Um, Also, the whole thing with Kirk's kid He finds out that he has a kid and they really do like next to nothing with that. They have like one little moment at the end where David says, I just want you to know that I'm proud of you as a captain. And I'm (laughs) proud to be your son. And then Kirk says, oh, and they hug. And then he says that he feels young because he felt old at the beginning, blah, 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 blah. But I don't know. I didn't feel like that was like emotionally resonant. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. So No, overall, I do not think this movie stands the test of time.
1: All right, Al. But Ghostbusters 2, that does stand the test of time. Star Trek 2 does not stand the test of time. Galaxy Quest does not stand the test of time. I thought you said you weren't going to shit on me if I said this movie doesn't stand the test of time. Is that shitting on you or is that just pointing out facts? Do not like when I point out that you love Ghostbusters 2 more than anything in the world?
0: I stand by my review of Ghostbusters 2. I barely remember it. It was five years
1: ago. I think you said you love it for a half hour. I am... Pretty sure that's not true. All right. You know, I said I wouldn't shit on you, and that's your opinion. I won't show you today on this one, but I'll definitely make references to this another time that you hate Star Trek. Wait, you don't hate this film, do you? Um, I didn't love it. I really didn't love it. That's I was... not what I asked you. Did you hate this film, now? I'm
0: thinking of what my father always used to say when I was a kid, which is, hate is a strong word. I don't know that I hate it, but I have zero desire to ever watch it again.
1: Okay, how about this? Was this film as bad as you thought it would be? Um, I don't know. I tried to not go in with any expectations. So I don't know. Okay, fair. But you didn't like Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. That's your ruling. I like it, folks. And we'll see what you think. What do you think? Do you agree with Al that Star Trek Two sucks? I never said sucks. I
0: realize that I have probably, like, pissed off nerds and I've lost nerd cred, but whatever. I'm speaking my truth. So come at me at Test of Time Pod. Come at me, bro and girls. But that is going to do it for us this week. Next week, we will be talking about the sequel, Star Trek 3, colon, The Search for Spock, which is stupid because we know where he is. He's in a coffin on that planet. Like, just go there. That Go where you shot him in space. Oh, we need to find Spock. Oh, he's exactly where we left him because he's dead. The end. Um, I'm assuming there will be more to it than that. But in the meantime, let us know your thoughts about Star Trek and all things nerd. Did you sit around on New Year's Eve and, like, tape marathons of Star Trek episodes just like James did? Let us know. Write to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Test of Time Pod. Uh, but we will see you next week for the next installment of... Star Trek fur? Star Trek timber? Star Trek fur 2021. Okay, sure. We'll go with that. Bye,
1: everybody. Bye.